Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese-American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S.-Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese-Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Politicus. We are happy that you have decided to spend some of your day with us. My name is Angela Samos, and I'm here with my esteemed cohort and co-host, the most awesome Denise Borges. How are you, Denise? I'm great, and I have to return the compliment with the most yeah. awesome in the universe <laughs> chairperson for any uh, Portuguese-American organization, Angela Costa Simões, who I've known yeah. for such a long time. Since she was, a, since she was a, <laughs> a student. And we are here <laughs> with uh, one of our guests, Angela. We're very excited because um, besides being a uh, public servant, uh, Portuguese-American public servant in California, she's uh, also a friend of ours. We consider her a friend, a friend of the community in general. And uh, that is Assemblywoman Cecilia Aguiar-Curry. Cecilia, welcome so much, Assemblywoman. Thank you for taking time from your busy and challenging time to be with us. Oh, it's an honor, yes. and I'm excited to have a conversation today, and I must admit, I miss not seeing the two of you, because every now and then we'd run in, and generally in June, you're over at the Capitol, and we're chatting yep. and doing resolutions and all those fun things and breakfast, so this is a different way of doing it, and hopefully next year we'll be back at the Capitol, and we can present the re another resolution to uh, Portuguese Month, and, and we'll move forward, but... It's well, we can just take that one that your awesome staff wrote. Uh, so it was, and I thank you and your staff for rewriting it because the old yeah. resolution was a little bit outdated. Uh, yeah. Incorporating some of the new things that uh, we've been doing in the Portuguese American community in the last three years, and hopefully next year we'll introduce it. Right, exactly. So let's start a little bit by, if you don't mind, giving us a little sure. bit of a bio. You know, all our, our listeners to Politicus, to this uh, podcast uh, from the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States from Palkus. We have listeners all over the, the U.S. and Canada and the world. And so um, some people uh, know you. They know you quite well here in California, but they may not know you as well in the East Coast or other parts. And so give us a little bit of a bio. Who is Cecilia Aguiar-Curry, Assemblywoman Cecilia Aguiar-Curry, and your connection to the Portuguese-American world? Sure. Well, I'm Cecilia. I reside in Winters, California, which is in Northern California, and I represent the 4th District, which has six counties. And I'm really proud of the area that I have. I work for, with rural communities. So I have Lake County, Napa County, parts of Calusa, Sonoma, uh, Yolo County, and Solano County. And uh, the primarily, I represent uh, the farmers. And my father was raised in Layton, California, uh, which is near Fresno, a little tiny spot on the, uh, on the uh, map of California. And he, his father came over from the uh, Azores established himself in Layton, uh, was a dairyman. He came over with his brother, my uncle Joe, and uh, they had a dairy just outside of Layton. My mother, uh, my grandmother was brought over um, as an arranged marriage, quite frankly, uh, when she was like 14 or 15 years old. Um, and she came to the ranch and they all had a, a tough life, um, no doubt about it. My uncle, my grandfather, unfortunately passed away quite young. He uh, fell into a ditch when he was irrigating, and he drowned. And so my father uh, and his two brothers were left with the dairy. And my Uncle Joe luckily um, came forth and helped them with the dairy. And eventually, my father 
uh, decided that he was going to continue his education, and he went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Um, my uncle, uh, John, he went off to um, get in the trucking industry. And then my uncle, Manuel, was a longtime uh, janitor at uh, Layton High School. So uh, some stayed in the area. And then um, my father was an uh, incredible basketball player. So if you ever want to go to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, my Joe Aguiar's name is sitting there for his uh, incredible basketball skills in the day. So we ended up being uh, coming to Winters, California. Um, after I was born, my father had gone into the Army. He was in the Army for a while. He was a butcher uh, and a meat inspector because he had such good talents from the dairy. And then uh, he went off to decide he wanted to be a teacher. And he got his credential at Cal Poly. And then he came to Winters and thought he was just going to be for a short stay. And he loved it here. And the reason he loved it here is because he did find a small community of Portuguese families here who have all since uh, deceased, but he was here with them. And then um, he was basically offered the job by the farmers and the farmers liked his past experience. And they helped my family get their first um, home here in winters, uh, a rental. And we all lived together here. And, and that's how we, we ended up here in Winters, California. And how did you, how did you get into public service? Well, I got into public service because of my, my, quite frankly, my father. My father was an FFA teacher. He taught us all about leadership, and he said that you always need to give back to your community. My mother was the same way, and we just got involved with the community. Whether and Obviously, the first place you always work for is with the church, and we were involved. My mother was very involved with the Altar Society. She taught catechism, and then, um, but my family gave back to the community. So as I got older, I you know became a president of this I was, excuse me, uh, a member of the student body at the Winters High School, and then I went on to college. I was uh, the director of ethnic and intercultural affairs. I came back home after I was married, and I got divorced. I came back to Winters, and I decided it's time to give back in another way, and I got on the planning commission. I was elected to the city council. I was then elected to be the mayor, and I was the longest standing mayor in the city of Winters. I was the very first woman as well, so that's what jumped me into this. But, you know, along the way, there's a lot of things that I, I would like to encourage anyone that's listening to this is to get involved with your community, mm-hmm. whether you're becoming a soccer coach, a basketball coach, a, you're teaching catechism, all those things add up to an incredible uh, resume. And that's what, what you, your heart gets full helping people. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how I got into this. And one day I got a phone call. And the phone call was from a group of women uh, that I had never met and said, you have everything it takes to be a good legislator. And I laughed and I said, oh, you got to be kidding me. I, I'm not good at this. And they said, oh, no, you're really good. You just don't know it. And um, so I ran against four gentlemen and I beat them. And <laughs> I'm assembly. So, so, you, I so you mentioned the planning commission was your first step. So why the Planning Commission and how do you get onto the Planning Commission? Because I think a lot of people are also wondering, okay, what's the first step? And I, a lot of people think of school board, right? And how to do that. Right. But talk about Planning Commission, how that gets started. Well, the Planning Commission in our town and many towns are, are uh, you go just through an interview process. And I'm going to tell you, you don't need to know everything about planning. You generally have some mentors within the city that you can meet with and walk you through the planning process and there's lots of books but you know I kind of jumped into it without knowing a lot about planning but you learn 
quickly. And the planning commission is difficult. I'm not going to, but it's fun because it's like, Mm -hmm. how do you plan your town? What kind of vision do you want of it? Do Mm -hmm. you want to expand it to go into farmland? Maybe not. That's a good idea. Do you want to have high density homes? So it's really exciting, a a really exciting committee to be on. And you've got to remember is that most everyone else on the committee are learning as you go as well. So it's not that you have to have a degree in engineering or planning. You can do it, you know, and you just have to be a really good listener. You might be quiet for the first couple of meetings and then you start getting the hang of it. So that's how I got got, uh, started with doing the planning commission. And is it elected or do you have to apply? So you just, um, most cities you apply and you go through a, um, a process of, of being interviewed and generally it's, they, in uh, my situation, they pick people who have a heart of where you're living. What's important to you? They ask you the basic questions. What do you like about your city? What would you like hmm. to see change? Those are the kinds of questions you need to be ready for. And then when you don't know an answer, you say, you know, I don't know, but I'm willing hmm. to spend the time and find out. And those are the kinds of the things that most times when you go through these interviews, they want to know that you're willing to listen and that you're willing to expand your knowledge base and that you have a vision. So I think those are really important pieces. And now fast forward to your, your current position, talk a little bit about what that has been like Mm -hmm. and talk about like, what's been, I guess, one of the most rewarding, but then also the most challenging. And then maybe we can even get into kind of what's happening in the world today. Oh, that that's great. Well, um, when I went into the assembly, I was quite nervous and I was naive. And when I say I'm naive, it was the process that I was naive about. Could I do the job? Absolutely. Am I a good listener? Do I have a big heart? Do I want to, um, I'm a public servant. I'm not a politician. I am a public servant. I love helping people. The hard part was, is that all of a sudden you have a lot of people that are asking for your vote or pleading their case. And so you have to really sit and listen. But the hard part about that was, is that you've got to know some of the history behind a bill. And sometimes you don't know that. So the importance as was for me initially was just getting a really strong team together that help, could help guide me. And so that first year was a lot of learning, um, but I felt very confident. And the confidence came in just from my ex, uh, my uh, learning time as being a mayor. I learned about water problems. I learned about unions. I learned about electricity. I learned about streets and lighting. I learned about infrastructure. And when lobbyists come in and they ask you questions, I think they were shocked that as a woman that I knew those answers. Hmm. And they were trying to pull the wool over my eyes numerous times. And I go, whoa, wait, do you understand what I've done in my life? I get this stuff. So that was, you know, kind of a challenge of it. But along the line is it's really important that I go out and visit my constituents to hear from my constituents what's important to them. Uh, The lobbyists are great, but you know what? I want to see face-to-face and I want to hear people's stories. And when you hear the stories, um, they they fill your heart. You feel disgusted sometimes of what's been going on in the world, but it's it's very heart-wrenching many times. I'm not going to lie how many times I've cried in my office when a young lady walks in who's got tattoos all over her says, I just want an education. And I did a bill that allowed her to continue her education as a single mother that she had childcare, and that she ended up going and graduating from the army 
and oh, it, wow. filled, it filled my heart, you know? So it's mm-hmm, those kinds of mm-hmm. stories that you just kind of go, oh man, this is what the job's about. It really is. So, um, go ahead. No, nowadays you mentioned about lobby. There's lobbying, uh, and of mm-hmm. course we have some friends in the lobby industry. Yeah. But um, how difficult is it to conciliate these two things? I mean, you do. You do have to listen to some of the lobbyists that are. They bring a wealth of information as well. You know, I mean, right. they're obviously defending their, their own perspective, but they also can bring a wealth of information to right. aid limited resources that you all have. So, how do you conciliate right. this? You know, between constituents and, and the lobbying industry. The lobbyist is building trust. And I tell you, I have, and you know some of my favorite lobbyists, mm-hmm. because they build trust from day one, right? And they come in, they look you in the eye, they answer the questions. I'm sorry about the background. But I, but they're, when they come in and they ask me for something or vice versa, I get the information right away. And there's some that you just can see right through them that are like they're in the business for the wrong reason. So there's no doubt about it. There are good lobbyists and there are challenging lobbyists. But that's all part of the job, right? That's what you have to figure out on your own. And uh, you got to make sure that that whatever um, bill or policy they're bringing towards for you is something that you can live with and that you can support or be very frank and say, I can't support it the way you're bringing this particular bill forward, but we can work on it together. And I love the lobbyists that collaborate. They want to figure out a solution. So those are the ones that I I, I really appreciate. Sure. Um, what I do um, want to say is that this has been a very difficult year. Mm-hmm. And I hope you don't mind me talking about that. But it's Not a difficult at all. My district, I guess all since I've been in the business, but I've had fires in my district four years in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing worse than picking up a family, taking them to their burning down home and watching them mourn and cry. And that's when you know your job is different than anyone else's because you have a whole new thing you have to deal with. You have to deal with loss of their homes, of their health. It just is, it's overwhelming. So we've had four years of fires in my district. And then this year we've had the COVID. Can I say my team has done a phenomenal job? Absolutely. During the COVID because we're almost like a well-oiled machine because we've been through so many disasters, Hmm. but it's heart-wrenching. And it's so hard for um, you to deal with uh, people that are dying, people that are uh, struggling to get their health back. It's difficult for my team. Um, there are now become EDD specialists when that wasn't something they ever thought mm. they would do. Um, they've become specialists in small business administration work. They've had to think out of the box on, on issues that they never thought they'd have to do. Um, but that's what constituent work's about and helping people weather uh, difficult times is um, is pretty remarkable. And mm-hmm. then now with the protesting and um, Black Lives Matters, all those things are so important that, that you get caught up, not caught up, but we know it's the right thing to do and we know that we have to help people out. And to be really good listeners right now, we've had some unfortunate things with different constituents that have not been very polite, I guess is the nicest thing to say, but you're, you're given a lot and it's, um, it's really, it's been more than challenging. Um, and as you can imagine, we have a budget in the state of California that's been Mm -hmm. decimated. So every bill that I had planned on working on in January, I had 21 bills. They're gone. I'm down to five. 
And um, they were a lot of bills that were just lovely that I liked, that I still like. Um, and we'll bring those back another time. But um, we really had to be thoughtful and mindful about um, what's happening in the state of California and how we're going to actually put the bill. So amongst all this, we're now dealing with a budget with a $54 billion deficit. And unfortunately, it hits education. And so, Denise, yeah. we're working hard for you, buddy. <laughs> I hope so. One of the things that uh, you you mentioned a lot that uh, I'd like to break down, I'm sure, Angela, as well. And let's start with, start with the COVID-19, with the coronavirus. Um, and, of course, there's the politics of it, and that's one issue. Also, um, you mentioned, and I want to take, break that down into two parts. First of all, how important the local services and your tenure and the planning commission as mayor and everything else. And I, I, I so for some of the dialogues that I've been having uh, and uh, I'd like to get your perspective on it is that in such a time and we, it's not anybody's secret. It's not political, just factual. There's been a lack of national leadership. And so at this time, it's so important that state and local leaders have taken up that vacuum to bring yeah. some issues in the forefront of the, uh, that were brought up through, uh, through the pandemic. And so how do you see the state of California, in this case, in the California state legislature, taking up this leadership that has been left behind? Well, you know, I'm honored that I'm uh, working with uh, Governor Newsom because he really has taken this on. Have I always agreed with what he has done in some of the executive orders? No, not always. And because, um, and I'll get to that, but he has um, taken really good leadership role. A lot of people are listening to him. And I liked the fact that how he worked with the Office of Emergency Services and the Department of Health uh, from the state level. And then the state went and worked with all of our counties. So um, on the counties were always aware, which uh, helped the uh, locals understand what's going on. So I think on that st uh, stance, it worked well. Um, I think the PPE issue is still outstanding. We're continuing to have to work on that. Look, we weren't prepared. No one was prepared for this. The only person I will say that mentioned this like two weeks before the pandemic hit was um, Janet Napolitano. Mm -hmm. I was at a meeting with her and I said, what is the uh, best thing about you know your job? And what's the thing that is the biggest challenge? She goes, there's going to be a pandemic. And my heart dropped. And then weeks later, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. We were prepared. So on the state leadership, the governor has done some really, really good things. But sometimes as we work with our constituents in the counties and the locals, um, he will ask uh, or explain that he's got some new program, the volunteerism program, uh, food for seniors program, um, but we don't have a process in place yet. So for me, it was hard because we'd get phone calls to the office right away and our district office had to say, well, we don't know what the process is yet. And so I want to make sure I understand what the process is so that we can fulfill his goals as well as the, the needs of our constituents. So that was kind of a, that's kind of tough. And every now and then these executive orders go, oh, what's he saying? But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, he's got to be a leader. I mean, you know. Well, and in your district, you have the rural aspect, but you also have, you know, the university and right. this is, which is a world to its own. And, and there's been kind of a dual a duality here between rural counties and the more dense population areas of the Bay Area or Southern California. How do you feel the state has dealt with that uh, duality, you know, rural versus uh, cosmopolitan areas? 
Well, I, I think, you know, without a doubt, no one knew how to handle this initially. Mm-hmm. And the six counties in the Bay Area took this on immediately. They closed up shop. They made sure that they were staying in place. And uh, that sounded the alarm for many places across the entire nation, knowing that the, the Bay Area did that. It's a more dense population for sure. Our rural areas has struggled with it. They're angry. Um, why us? We don't have that many COVID patients. We don't have anyone in the hospital. You know, and, and I understand that. But I think initially we all needed to, to bear down for a while and then see how it would roll out. And um, I think I think I'm going to be very interested in what happens in the next couple of weeks, actually, because people are starting to get out more. Um, some of our rural communities have the beautiful lakes and streams and more people are getting out to those. And they're, so it's going to be interesting what happens in the next couple of weeks on how that rolled out. But I do understand our rural communities. Um, uh, we're not as dense. Uh, we're not on everyone's back. We're walking in our neighborhoods. We know with masks on, but you know, everyone's kind of saying, okay, I'm, I'm about done with this. I want the economy to come back. The economy is struggling um, throughout the nation, but in our small rural communities, I have a town that really uh, embraced tourism and all the restaurants are closed. The brand new hotel that was only open six weeks is closed and they may go under because they were sold out for the rest of summer. And now they're just trying to get back on their feet. So it's, it's been tough. Our, you know, our, we have lakes that want to, people that want to get out on the lake. Well, we're social distancing. I get it. So there's always a few bad apples that decide to have a party on a beach and it kind of ruins it for everyone else. But even though we do have a deficit, uh, a single woman, we are still a pretty rich state. So I think mm-hmm. there are resources that we can that we can face this time of pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, there are resources. I think, you know, we were, the state of California is pretty privileged. Sure. We were really privileged. We yeah. have a, we had lots of money. We had a lot of funding. We had grandiose ideas. Thank goodness for Governor Brown who stepped back and said, we need to save money. And then we have some of our colleagues that were mad that we weren't uh, using that money. And so now it's like, uh, thank God we didn't spend all of it. It's going to be an interesting ride because uh, with the budget, there is some funding that's out there and we're grappling with it right now. So as I sit here at three o'clock this afternoon, I will be on a long conference call just going over the budget and all the budget asks. Everybody has a, a budget ask. There's things that I don't want to get rid of. Obviously, I need to make sure our education's funded. I need to make sure our health care, our seniors are taken care of. There's mm-hmm. a, certain things that I really want to make sure that are, don't get lost in this mess right now. Um, right. More, now more than ever, education. Uh, but how are we going to look at education? Are we going to look at it through classrooms? Uh, are we going to have to change the schedules at, at schools? Um, how are we going to deal with kindergartners that don't know, understand social distancing? <laughs> I mean, so much that we need to think of. How do we get childcare? We need mm-hmm. childcare more than ever because women are the backbone of many of our small businesses. And if they don't have daycare, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that um, is on my mind on mm-hmm. um, as I look at the um, as I look at the budget um, do I have specific asks absolutely and um, they are to make sure that we ha- can get a healthy uh, workforce back and uh, it's going to take a lot there's going to you know continue to be people that are, are unemployed 
Uh, there's a chance that we could lose 40% of our uh, small businesses. And I had a, I was on a meeting with a Robert, Robert Reeks, Reeks uh, economist under Clinton administration the other day. And I, we asked him, what's your number one fear? What's the number one thing that we need to get back? And he said, supply chain. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't realize that the mm-hmm. support, important the supply chain is we depend upon other countries for our nuts and bolts and whatever for different uh, things we make in the, in the United States. We need to redo our supply chain and rethink this. So there's a lot of work to be done. We got pretty cocky. Yeah. And so with all of this, mm-hmm. I feel like uh, now more than in any recent time I can remember, tensions and emotions are very high, right? Mm-hmm. And you said you have people in your district who are angry, you know, they're going out and having the parties anyway. And then you have people who are trying to be safe. So how have you tried to address this emotional upheaval, I guess, in your district? Have there been like, you know, group discussions, town halls? Do you address, like, how do you try and, and not going to say calm people, but I mean, it can't just be mass chaos, right? So have you guys done anything in that realm to try and get people to understand, like, listen, I understand you're upset, but this is how we have to do things. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Cause it's such a, it's sure. everywhere, right? It's not just in this, a few areas. It's literally everywhere in the country. Right. So one of the things that I, um, we do is that we have really good relations with our board of supervisors throughout the district. And you might go, well, why do you have such good relations with them? Because they're the ones that have to deliver a lot of the messages. They're mm-hmm. the ones that your, your locals trust more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, they know them at the grocery store. And so we have conversations with them on, you know, different things on how the budget's going to go. I've delivered with different groups, particularly the budget. I've had to say to them, I want to let you know, this is the time we all have to be strong and be leaders because the money's not going to be there. With the COVID, we've had to be really diligent working with the, uh, every county's Department of Health, having very frank conversations with them. And um, actually, they've all followed through with it. I have good relationships with many of the supervisors. They'll call me, I'll call them and try to have a um, frank and difficult conversations. They make sure they get it on their local Facebook pages. I do the same thing, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we try to get out the information as much as possible. I will say because we've had so many disasters in my particular district, we are a well-oiled machine. Um, Mm -hmm. People believe what we're going to do because we've had to do this so many times Mm -hmm. and we follow through, follow through, follow through, follow through is what they want. Is um, with all the unrest and and things that are going on, there's a lot of uh, small protests that they're having in some of the smaller communities. Uh, They're being handled quite well. And the cities are involved with them. Um, in fact, I'm going to go to one here in Little Winters tomorrow. And um, I, I, I know they'll be peaceful. I think that we've got people that are angry right now. They don't have a job. Uh, they don't have, may not even qualify for unemployment. Um, and what we've seen in the civil disruption um, is not going to go away real soon, I don't think. But I'm committed I'm committed to work with everyone to get make this right. It's been uh, wrong for way too long, and we are working with our uh, from our cities to city councils to the police departments, having we're um, actually really good conversations on what they want to do. Uh, some of them are looking at different visions, doing work mm-hmm. differently. 
Um, last year, Assemblymember Weber, uh, Weber did her uh, police brutality bill that was very difficult for some people to come up on, but in retrospect, it's probably the, the leading bill in the in the nation. So, you know, it's um, I, I can't even begin to tell you how stressful the job has been right now. It just mm -hmm. is, uh, but I love it. Um, I love helping people, and um, I'll continue to do that no matter what. So, as we move, as Angela mentioned, uh, Superwoman, um, as we face some of these challenges, and uh, uh -huh. as you mentioned also, it's been wrong for too long, and that's for short. Uh, as a community, as Portuguese American community, sometimes we don't uh, get our feet wet in these issues. We say it's not our issue, you know, um, but it is our issue because mm -hmm. it's uh, when, as paraphrasing uh, Martin Luther King, when injustice is done to one, it's done to all. And mm -hmm. so, um, how do you think? How would you, you know, with your experience, with your wisdom, with your thoughts, with all of your contacts, how would you uh, give us some 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 uh, pointers as how the Portuguese American community can deal with the subject that it is indeed ours as well. As a matter of fact, because of our history with the, with slavery and everything else in the Portuguese, Amer in the Portuguese yeah. world, obviously we can't go back uh, 500 years and rewrite history. However, how do we in the Portuguese American world uh, get involved and how do we go move forward and accept these different points of view and, and the view of the Black Lives Matter and these views that, uh, that uh, try to rewrite some of the things that have been wrong in society, it affects all of us. Um, and I know that, uh, so how would you, what would you say for us in the Portuguese American community uh, would be some pointers that we could move forward uh, in an issue that indeed does affect all of us? You know, I, I'm going to be really frank about this. I, I too don't know everything you know, about Black Lives Matter and about racism. I don't feel like I'm racist. And I think a lot of us don't think we are, but I'm sure we all have something in us, right? Mm -hmm. And I need to know more about myself. And so I committed by talking to um, the head of the Black Caucus, uh, Shirley Weber, that I needed to be educated. And ironically, she got phone calls from all the assembly members saying, Ms. Weber, I need help. I have I, I need to be educated, you know, right? And so um, we're going to do a whole thing on Zoom. And I would uh, encourage as soon as she gets it copied is that people watch it because mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know what she feels like walking in her shoes. Mm -hmm. I can walk across the street at the uh, Capitol and feel relatively safe. She doesn't have that same advantage. Right. She gets pulled over in a car. And you know how all of our heart just sinks if we get pulled over in a car. We go, oh, my gosh, you know, where's my – she goes, can you imagine me in black? Can you imagine what's going to happen to me? It's a whole different story, you know. So I, I have to be educated. So I think um, what I've been doing is I'm listening to some very thoughtful and meaningful po uh, uh, podcasts. I've been looking at different movies. I just watched 13. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch 13. I just did uh, uh, Michelle Obama I, because I, I thought hers was so good. It's like we need to vote. And that's what I need to tell the, our Portuguese community. Make sure you do the census and make sure you vote. Those are so important things right now because that's where your voice is going to be heard the most. Um, but, you need, but we need to be educated. And I think people are afraid to say that they don't know. I'm not afraid to say it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I mean, 
Indeed, that's that's the secret. The secret is uh, we can all just, you know, we can all have our rants, but indeed we all need to be educated, you know, yeah. and always learn and always and always go forward mm-hmm. and, and listen, especially to folks who are living, as you said, as your colleague, uh, Weber, yeah. on uh, in those shoes. You know, we, we really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a colleague, um, one of our assembly members, um, Mr. Gibson, he's got a brother shot and killed and his his son got um, shot during the COVID. It's like, mm. oh my God, I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, you know, and as being a mother, I, I, I need to make sure my children, my grandchildren are educated and uh, we're going to look at things differently. So, yeah. So I, w- I want to know, Assemblywoman, when you're running for president. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be because, fun? Well, I just, you know, listening to you, you have, um, it, it, it's such a, you're so sincere and so passionate and you can tell that you really do care about your constituents. You're not just saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I just, it's, it's, uh, it's refreshing to hear uh, that well, kind of talk, frankly. Well, you know what? I'm older than a lot of my colleagues. <laughs> and you know what? When you're older, you learn a lot along the way. And yeah. so, but I, I, I do want to share something with all of you that I'm passionate about. And um, I really care for my rural communities, and we haven't had a voice. Some of my colleagues in rural areas are easy to criticize some of the things that I try to do, but um, our voices need to be heard. One of the things I did right when I got elected, I took my whole team out to the district to, so they would understand what a rural community is like. We don't have asphalt on all our roads. We, you know, we have, a t- there's a tough life and there's some that obviously there's a lot, there's privilege. I'm not going to lie in rural areas as well, but it's tough. And I did a couple things. Number one thing in rural communities, access, lack of access to education, access to jobs, access to health care. I mean, the, the, the access word is my word. And so right when I got in, I did a bill with Assemblymember Garcia on Internet for All. We got the bill through, a lot of fighting over it, and um, our big companies were supposed to be doing some uh, implementation of that bill. When the COVID hit and our kids were expected to go home and do online learning, in rural areas, they didn't have connectivity. And so I'm really not happy that my bill never got implemented. Next week, I'm going to be introducing big legislation so that our rural communities have to get it implemented so that every child has access to the internet. Do I think learning should be totally internet? No, I don't. But you know what? Access they do. People need to have access to telehealth. They, and as you know, through COVID, telehealth is Zooming. And my bill from last year uh, was supposed to be delayed. They ended up signing it because it was an emergency in the state of California. And doctors are using telehealth as we speak. Did a bill on telepharmacy so we could have a small, pharmacy, um, small pharmacies in very small communities so they could have access to their medication. This year, I tried, but again, because of the... Um, COVID is telepsychiatry. So many people have mental health issues that can't go to a psychiatrist or find a psychiatrist. And with telepsychiatry, you can actually go online, just like we're doing with a Zoom call, and talk to your psychiatrist. So you need access to broadband. So I just want to just share with you is that 
um, the internet for all is good for even big urban areas. We have areas in LA that don't have internet, but internet needs to be affordable, has to be quality. And uh, so Denise will come, have a job for the rest of his life online. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to do that. I want to retire. Um, I think we're just about out of time, but I'd like to bring it back. If, uh, okay. if I don't know if you have any other questions. I know we have questions for about another hour with the assemblywoman, but <laughs> she, she has other things to do. I'd like to bring it back to where we started with your Portuguese connection. I know that um, this last uh, fall you were able uh, to go to the Azores, uh, part of the uh, California Portuguese American Coalition uh, visit uh, that Angela and I are both on the board uh, as well. And how was that? Uh, how was that contact with the, with your roots? Uh, let's put it that way. Um, I think it was your first time going to the Azores, and so um, uh, you and of course uh, State Senator uh, Henry Stern and Assemblyman. Um, Solace. That's right. Uh, Solace also uh, attended uh, the the event. And so um, it was a very short and very uh, uh, short trip. But uh, how was that contact with your roots? And and how is the work going on kind of trying to get a better working relationship with legislators on that part of the world as well? I know that there will be another trip that you'll be going this time to mainland Portugal. Um, Mm. And how do you feel these? uh, So a little bit going back to the roots. How was the contact uh, with with your roots in the land of your forefathers? First of all, and second of all, how do you how you feel about this uh, other new way of contacting with legislators and with government officials, both in the Azores and in mainland Portugal as well? Well, first of all, I had the time of my life going back there, and it gives me a lump in my throat when you just ask me because it was it was so touching. It was so touching to go back. And you kind of feel it. And um, my uh, staff, um, my ledge director who went with me, um, Angela, we both said our hearts were full going back and seeing just what our families had gone through. And um, not only the beauty of the land, but, you know, the volcanoes that they had. And I mean, so much was there. And um, the beauty of the cities and it just it was very touching and the food and the smells because I remember those from my grandmother so clearly. I wish I spoke Portuguese. I mean, I really do because it's just a beautiful language, but it was just really uh, fulfilled a lot of the dreams I had. And so I had planned two trips back to Portugal this year, uh, one with an organization. And then I also had one, I bid on a, a, a trip to Portugal. So I was really looking forward to going and I am intending on going again. I don't know if it'll be in the fall, but um, it, it filled um, a void, it filled a big void. And so I went and I started working on my ancestors and finding out that we were Sousas, we are Gills, Nunes, Bangundas, Gonzalves. I mean, so, you know, I'm going to have to find out more and you've all made an offer to uh, do my, um, my family tree, which I'm going to take everybody up on, but slowly I found out some of those and it was like, my brothers are all into it now. And, you know, we should have gone with my father before he passed away, but um, we're going to try to go as a family. So um, I can't uh, begin to thank you for the most um, wonderful experience I've ever, ever, I'm not a traveler. And um, this was the time of my life and to, um, yeah. Oh, thank you. And and uh, and also, besides the emotional, the emotional obviously was there with all of us, and it was mm-hmm. it was wonderful to see how you and Angela accomplished uh, as well. You think that uh, this dialogue, this opportunity that you had, uh, also uh, you had some very interesting conversations with 
with the president of the parliament there you have, and with the president of the government of the Azores and now going uh, hopefully in the fall with the with the foundation that's going to take a group of legislators to mainland Portugal to have conversations there. There seems to be some new technologies, uh, some of the things that they're doing with, uh, with uh, the renewable energies. Do you think there's some room here uh, for some working relationships? Oh, by far. So I'm sorry I didn't even... Um, there was so much opportunity in the Azores that I was like, I didn't realize. And the technology and the, the energy information and the young lady who was doing the energy for the Azores was just phenomenal. But I think we need to, um, I know that our intention is to continue moving forward and having those uh, conversations with the legislators in uh, Portugal and the Azores as well. Um, the problem that we had is because we're so mixed up right now with the COVID that some of the things and plans that we had planned on getting done this year just didn't get done. Um, but we're not, they're not forgotten. And um, in the fall, we slow down again at the Capitol and um, it's one of our top things to get done. As you know, we have a couple of our young men that are helping us out with uh, getting all the legislation stuff done, but it's not forgotten. We got to get it done. Paulo came to visit us, and that was really nice, and we have more to, to come and welcome to California, so we're hoping we could do that. But the technology and having that conversation and visits, we talked about culinary arts even, tourism, those things we need to follow up with. So, yeah, I, I think we have a lot of opportunity. It's just... Unfortunately, we've kind of hit a couple of rough spots this past year. Just a few. Sure. We'll bring them up as, as, as we'll return to some sense of new normality. <laughs> but you know what? I want to encourage anyone that is in, uh, looking into getting into public service. And you know, as you notice, I don't call it politics because it is public service. Your heart has to be into this. Um, I'm more than happy to come talk to them. I'm more than happy for them to come to my office. I'm more than happy to have them have a day in my office and walk around and see what we do, hmm. whatever. Um, I'm always offered to do that, as well as any uh, agricultural opportunities. Somebody wants to come what's going on in my region. Obviously, I have almonds and walnuts like you do, but I also have processing plants. I have wineries. We're more than wel welcome to set up tours for anyone that would like to come visit us as well. That's great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, I think uh, we've reached our time. Um, but like Denise said, we could go on for hours. But I know you have a, a very long uh, Zoom call, as you said, coming up. But um, thank you. Thank you so much, Assemblywoman. Yeah, we, uh, I think we may have you uh, on a few times. You're really, <laughs> really great to, to chat with. So thank you very much for your time. It was really, really great. My pleasure. And, so you, I like what you're doing. You're doing a really good job. Thank you very much. Yes, everybody. So we, have, we, we have a good team. We have a good team. Um, thanks to everybody out there who listened. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. If you haven't hit subscribe to Politicus, please do so right now. And share this podcast with friends and family. And uh, share the conversation. Uh, you know, this is the only podcast that talks about uh, politics in our world from a Portuguese-American perspective. And so we need to share that conversation and have more conversations. And, and we are going to be having a few more hard-hitting conversations moving forward that we're looking forward to. So, um, you know, please hit subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes that will help others find us and uh, enjoy conversations like this one that we had with Assemblywoman Curry. And um, with that, we'll say... Thank you again, Assemblywoman. Thank you, Dinesh. Thanks, everybody out there. And have a great day. 
Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of Palcus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. Palcus is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. To learn more about Palcus and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palcus.org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palcus.palcus.org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palcus. Politicus is made possible through the support of the Luso-American Development Foundation.